This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Jessica Silby. I am an intellectual property law professor here at Suffolk University Law School. I teach copyright law and trademark law in the IP curriculum. There's this case that was decided last week, March 18, 2011, in the Southern District of New York called Patrick Carriou versus Richard Prince. A very interesting and important case for the art world, not only in New York, I think, but it will be relevant um, around the country. It deals with a kind of art that is has been developed over the 20th century and called appropriation art. So it's artists like Robert Rauschenberg, Jeff Koons, Earlier artists like Georges Braque and Marcel Duchamp were all appropriation artists. And it's a kind of art that is taking from other artists or other found objects in the world and making art out of them, sculptures or paintings, collages. The question that this case raises is whether those kind of taking, those kind of collages, violates copyright law and therefore could prevent that kind of art from flourishing further. Let me tell you a little bit about this case um, and the, the characters in the case. It's actually a sort of interesting backstory. The lawsuit is between a plaintiff who's a photographer named Patrick Carriou, who's not very, very well known, but he had a couple gallery shows in New York, and the defendant, Richard Prince, who is actually very, very well known, and Richard Prince's work commands very high prices in the millions and millions of dollars. Prince's work has been the subject of major exhibitions all over the nation at the Whitney Museum of Art, San Francisco Museum of Art, nationally in Basel and in London. And so it's an interesting story about a small artist plaintiff suing a very, very famous other artist defendant. As I said, Patrick Carriou is a photographer, and he published a book of photographs in 2000 called Yes Rasta, which was a book of photographs based on his time in Jamaica. Richard Prince, in 2005-2006, took some of these photographs and copied them and blew them up and made collages out of them in a show which he called Canal Zone. He pasted some of these photographs from Patrick Carriou onto wooden backgrounds, and then he painted on them, he cut them up. He would manipulate them. He'd make a collage. He added his own stuff to it, but he definitely used some of these photographs, Patrick Carriou's photographs of Jamaica, as the baseline. If people are interested, listeners as uh, podcasts are interested in seeing some of these pictures, they could go to the, the Gagosian Gallery's website. That's www.gagosian.com. And you'll see the art at issue here called Canal Zone. Prince put this big show together with these collage photos as a backdrop to a screenplay that he was going to write on the post-nuclear holocaust. So the subject of his art although taken from Patrick Carriou, had nothing to do with Jamaica, had nothing to do with Rastafarians. It was going to be about something else. But the images, he definitely used some uh, pieces of the images. So the issue in the case is not only whether there is infringement, but if there was infringement, whether there is fair use. And fair use is not actually an exemption to infringement. We usually say fair use is not infringement. It is part, intricately part of the copyright statute that says that this kind of taking is not unlawful. So the case was before Judge Batts in the Southern District of New York, and she held on summary judgment that Prince, the defendant, did infringe the photographs. 
and that he did not have a fair use defense at all as a matter of law. Now, there was no issue in the case Mr. Carey's photographs were themselves copyrighted. There's sometimes some question about whether factual photographs of this nature, like documentary photographs, are copyrightable expressions because you cannot copyright facts. So the example that we play with in copyright laws, for example, you can't copyright the fact that the moon rose over a mountain at a certain time, for example, but you can own a photograph of that fact, for example. So you take a picture of the moon rising over a mountain at a specific time of day. Ansel Adams, the famous photographer, has some beautiful photographs of that kind of thing. And you can own copyright in that expression, but the fact is not ownable. So someone can go to that place and take the picture that Ansel Adams took and also own their own copyrightable expression in the same exact fact. So the things that become ownable in photographs are angles and filters and framing and lighting and things like that, things that are recognizably the photograph photographer's own contribution to the fact in nature. Carrie owns the copyright in the photographs, that's not an issue. So when Prince copied the photos to make his collage, he was infringing at least two of the rights that Carrie owns. In copyright, in Section 106 of the Copyright Act, there are several forms of exclusive rights that copyright owners can own. One is the right to control reproduction, just the copyright. It's literally, you can prevent other people from making substantially similar copies of your work. The other right that copyright law gives is the right to make derivative works. That's the second right in 106. There are others as well, but these are the two that were mostly at issue in this case. And the right to make derivative works is a right of adaptation. It's an interesting and contentious right these days because it's ever-expanding, which means the copyright owner's monopoly is expanding, and that has implications for the public domain and things like that. So derivative works are uh, defined in the code as a work that's based on pre-existing work and one that adapts, recasts, or transforms an original work in some way. So traditionally, translations of a novel, for example, would be a derivative work. A film version of a book is a derivative work. An abridgment of a novel is a derivative work. These are the traditional forms of derivative works. It's a right, the right to make derivative works is one that gives the copyright owner control over the expansion of their market in their works. But that's uncontroversial as a definition, I think. Um, where the expansion ends becomes more controversial, but that's not necessarily totally at issue in this case. So there are several aspects of this case that I think are interesting. First, as I said, Richard Prince is a very, very famous artist. His work commands million-of-dollar prices, and his style of work, as I said, is called appropriation art, a very well-regarded and established form of modern and postmodern art. Some say that the earliest form of appropriation art, taking older works and repurposing them with new messages and meaning, were with Leonardo da Vinci, for example, and his reusing of scientific drawings for his paintings. Picasso and Brock were appropriation artists of a kind, and as I said, Marcel Duchamp, he was the artist who was famous for turning a ceramic urinal into a sculpture, is one of the most well-known early 20th century appropriation artists. And then in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you had a burgeoning of pop art and appropriation art. So as I said, Robert Rauschenberg, Andy Warhol, Jasper Johns, all became famous for taking popular cultural objects and images and making them into art and changing basically the landscape of art in the United States and the world. Richard Prince followed in their footsteps. 
He takes cultural icons. He's famous for taking the Marlboro Man, for example, from the advertisement and repurposing them with different frames and different angles to comment either on the materialism of popular culture, maybe masculinity, and the idea of the society of the spectacle. So in holding, as this court does, that Prince cannot do this kind of art without violating the copyright of the work he repurposes, this court, whether or not it realizes it, is probably changing the shape and the possibility of contemporary art for the future. And so this could be troubling from the perspective of creativity and innovation and free expression. It could also, I think, contrary to some views on the role of copyright law, which is first and foremost to incentivize the further creation of expressive forms, it could be troubling because it, this might be restricting that creativity. Now, one could say, as this court in fact did, that Defendant Prince is not prevented from making his art. He just has to pay the photographer, Mr. Patrick Carew, when he wants to copy the photographs and use them in his paintings. After all, Mr. Prince is a millionaire. He can do that if he wants to. But it's easy enough to say that for a very wealthy and fortunately famous artist like Prince. Just pay a license and you can make your art. For the young up-and-coming artist who wants to follow in the footsteps of these grandmasters and who cannot afford to pay a copyright licensing fee, the threat of infringement fines hang over their head, and it's something most young artists will not tolerate and therefore will not commence this kind of art. The second aspect of this case that's interesting is its explanation of fair use. So fair use, as I said, is an exemption from infringement. It's an inextricable part of the copyright code. It's embodied in Section 107 of the Act. So where 106 sets out the exclusive rights, right after that is 107, which says these are not infringement. Fair use notoriously provides breathing space for creativity. It is the public domain aspect of the copyright monopoly. So quoting an early case from the same court, this court says, copyright law must address the inevitable tension between property rights it establishes in creative works and the ability of later authors, artists, and the rest of us to express them or ourselves by reference to the work of others. So the fair use doctrine mediates between these two sets of interests, determining where each interest ceases to control. Judge Pierre Laval of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals so the court above this court, described the balance that fair use inserts into the Copyright Act as this. He says, at stake are the incentive to create original works, which copyright protection fosters, and the freedom to produce secondary works, which monopoly protection of copyright stifles. Both interests benefit the public. And that's exactly what's at issue in this case. Prince being the appropriator and a great artist, and Patrick Carew being a photographer who's trying to make a living with his art. So the four factors that a court considers in determining whether a use of an original work is fair, full analysis of them here is not necessary, but let me just say them out loud, and then I'll talk about only two very briefly, which um, make this case, I think, difficult for lawyers and artists in the future. The first factor is the purpose and character of the use, which includes whether or not the use is of a commercial nature or for nonprofit educational purposes, that's factor one. The second factor is the nature of the copyrighted work itself. The third is the amount and substantiality of the portion used of the copyrighted work in relation to it as a whole. The fourth is the effect of the use upon the potential market or value for the copyrighted work. The court goes into detail on all four of these factors, but I'm just going to say two things about the way the court applied two of these factors to say that Prince's use was unfair. The first factor, the purpose and character of the use, 
The court said that Prince's use was not sufficiently transformative, that its purpose and character was simply referential to the original work and did not change the message or meaning enough to make it something new. Factor one is often transformation is very important for fair use. That is, if you've made something wholly new out of something that came before you, the feeling is it's not something copyright law wants to prevent, but something copyright law wants to encourage. And so if it is wholly new with a new message or meaning, the statute and the courts have blessed that kind of taking even though it's taking from someone before you who has a copyrighted work. When the court said that Patrick's collages are not sufficiently transformative, this is another way of saying that all Prince did was make a derivative work out of Patrick Carew's photographs, that it is a form of adaptation and translation. It is not something that is new or novel that Prince should be able to make without paying for. It's also a way of saying that Patrick Carew should own the market in the artsy collages that might be made of his work. That even collages, for example, that are going to be the backdrop of a screenplay on nuclear holocaust, which is not anything that is related to Patrick's photographs. The court draws on examples of, in the Copyright Act that are more safely transformative, works that are used for commentary or criticism, teaching and scholarship, or news reporting. The court says these are the kind of transformations and exemptions that fair use was traditionally meant to embody. And that these uses, scholarship, criticism, commentary, news reporting, are so valued as a social form that the thumb on the scale of fair use is high in these cases, and the court found no such purpose here. So the court was sticking very close to the, what we call preambulatory purposes of fair use in copyright. So, for example, when a scholar quotes from a book to write a book review, that kind of quoting is usually considered fair use, even though it's copying somebody else's copyright expression. What the court said here is that Prince wasn't quoting to comment on Patrick Carey's work. He was just taking it to make something totally unrelated, but it wasn't sufficiently transformative to make it fair use. So Prince's mistake, the court says, is that it was using Carey's photographs not to comment for which the use might be essential, as in a book review, Prince was not using Carew's photographs to refer to them and to further dialogue about them. Instead, he was using them to claim a different artistic use, to make something unrelated. And so in one of the worst facts for the defendant in this case, and here as a lawyer, I think about what kind of testimony really sinks your case. This is one of those examples. The defendant, Prince, admitted in deposition testimony that he had no interest in the original meanings of the photographs and that he doesn't really have a message when he makes his art. That is, he just makes it, he's moved to make things, and he wasn't thinking about what the photographs mean or how he was commenting on them at all. So the court concludes that because in creating the paintings, Prince did not intend to make any comment or criticism on the original work, the first factor falls in plaintiff's favor. And there's no new transformation when there is no new message about the original art to be found. This is a very stingy reading of the first factor, I should say. Very stingy. And there aren't a lot of copyright cases on fair use that are this constrained in its first factor analysis. The fourth factor, which asks whether the defendant's use caused the plaintiff any market harm that's akin to market substitution, was also analyzed in this case in a, in a troubling, although informative way for future litigation. Traditionally, this factor goes for the plaintiff when the plaintiff can show that consumers are buying the defendant's work instead of the plaintiff's work. 
that is a traditional market usurpation, for example. In this case, the only evidence of market harm is that the plaintiff's gallerist, so Patrick Carew's gallerist, withdrew his photographs from the gallery where they were on sale and on show because Prince's work using the photographs were also on show and on sale at the same time at a nearby Gagosian gallery. So plaintiff's gallerist said that she canceled plaintiff's show because she did not want to seem to be capitalizing on the more famous Richard Prince's success and notoriety and because she did not want to exhibit work which she said had been, quote, done already, even though, of course, Prince was the first one to do it. Now, on the one hand, I understand how this could be seen as real market harm. Plaintiff's work comes off the market because the infringing work supersedes and overshadows them. Plaintiff no longer had a gallery market for his work because the gallerist had made a business choice to stop selling it because the infringer's work was more notorious. On the other hand, it does seem to me that the business decision could have easily gone the other way. It seems equally plausible, given the relative imbalance in the fame and the price of the two bodies of artwork, that Cario's work would be considered more valuable and more desirable precisely because Prince's work was based on it and was being shown at the upscale, super-fancy Gagosian Gallery a couple blocks away. Certainly, the market for Prince's art is very different than the market for the photographs by Patrick Cario. Prince paintings, as I said, sell for 6 to $8 million, and Cario's photographs sell for several thousand the same people are not necessarily buying both works. And so it seems more likely to me that Prince's appropriation of the photographs would help the market in the photographs and books, either as purchased by collectors of both or by less wealthy collectors who are looking to invest in an up-and-coming artist whose work is being adopted by a much more famous one. So what I take away from this ruling, one, Prince was wrong not to pay for the photographs, which he could have clearly afforded to do and which were clearly copyrighted, and which licensing revenue would have been more appreciated by the photographer Patrick Carew, who is not as well-known or well-off as Richard Prince. So that's one easy way to get rid of a, a case like this. The other one is that market harm can be found on speculative facts, speculative facts suggesting potential for licensing, even if the harm was caused by the plaintiff's own agent. This is troubling, I think. And three, the transformative use requires purposeful referral to the original work in the form of commentary or criticism. These three things, that if there is a licensing market, you should engage in it, that transformation requires purposeful referral to the original work, and that cases from the Second Circuit, nor from other cases around the country. It is arguably in tension with some Supreme Court cases, namely Campbell versus Acuff Rose. But fair use is notoriously fact-driven, the devil is always in the details with fair use. And so it's hard to say exactly how this case, Carew versus Richard Prince, will play out in the future. But safe to say that appropriation art, a very well-defined, well-studied, and revered form of art, is even further threatened by this ruling in the Southern District of New York. So there were damages, and one would think that Patrick Carew would just want some money, want some value for the photographs he was taking. Instead, the court ordered pursuant to Section 502 of the Copyright Act, that defendant, Richard Prince, shall deliver within 10 days of the date of this order, deliver up for impounding, destruction, or other disposition as the plaintiff determines all infringing copies of the photographs, including the paintings and unsold copies of the Canal Zone exhibition book. 
the transparencies, the plates, the masters, the tapes, the films, the negatives, the discs, and all other articles for making such infringing copies. So the destruction of the art or the impounding of it is what the remedy was, not necessarily monetary damages. Copyright damages are very discretionary and actually subject to a lot of due process challenges because of that discretion. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.